want to ask you to join me one more time briefly in prayer as we open up God's word together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you told us in your word that we can do nothing apart from you. And so we cannot understand your word or rightly apply it to our lives apart from you. We ask that you would grant the spirit to open our eyes, to help us to understand your word, to have our hearts changed by it, and to walk in newness of life because of it. We pray that you would do this for your glory and our good. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 23. If you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passage on pages 16 and 17. I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us in a few minutes. And I also want to encourage you to to, to keep your Bible open to Genesis 23 during our time because we're going to be looking often at the passage in our time together. Uh, so, so I've said that the central point of the book of Genesis is to trace the unfolding of God's promise to send a seed of the woman to crush the serpent and rescue mankind from sin. So in, in Genesis chapter 3, when God cursed the serpent for tempting Adam and Eve to sin, he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there is a seed coming from the woman who's going to crush the serpent's head and perhaps be, be harmed or wounded as he's doing it. The woman Eve will have a seed, a child, and that child will crush the serpent and rescue mankind from sin. And from that point forward, Moses carefully traces the line of individuals through whom that seed will come. And in chapter 12, we learned that God's promised seed, the savior of mankind, would come from the family line of Abraham. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham and his wife Sarah out of Ur of the Chaldeans in modern-day Iraq, and told him to go to the land of Canaan, where he would make Abraham's name great, where he would make Abraham a blessing to the nations, where he would give Abraham many descendants, and where he would eventually give Abraham the land of Canaan as his very own possession. And from chapter 12 onward, we watch how God kept those promises in the face of Numerous obstacles. Obstacles like Abraham's repeated sins and failures. Obstacles like Sarah's barrenness. Sarah couldn't have children. How were they going to have many descendants? And obstacles like marauding kings coming into the land of Canaan, threatening the land that God promised Abraham. At every step along the way, we have seen how God overcomes Obstacle after obstacle to keep his promises to Abraham. But in Genesis chapter 23, we're confronted with what is 
the greatest obstacle yet to the fulfillment of God's promises. What is that obstacle? I want you to go ahead and follow along as I read the passage for us now. This is God's word. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the, land, of the people of the land, but if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. In the past 11 chapters, we've seen God overcome sin, foolishness, physical limitations, and foreign powers to protect the promises he made to Abraham. But in chapter 23, we find the greatest obstacle yet 
to the fulfillment of those promises, and that obstacle is death. Death stands in the way of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and to Sarah through Abraham. But the massively encouraging lesson that Genesis 23 teaches us today is that death can't stop God from keeping his promises to his people. And specifically, death can't stop God from giving his people the land he promised them. So if you're taking notes, we're, we're gonna consider this chapter in three broad movements. First, I'm just gonna walk us through the passage, explaining it as I go. But second, after we've walked through the passage, I wanna show how this passage is fulfilled in Christ in the gospel. And then third, we're gonna consider what this text means for us today. For us today. So if you have your Bible in, open in front of you, which I hope you do, let's go ahead and take a look at the text together. Looking at chapter 23. Go ahead and look at the, the first opening verses of the chapter. In verses one and two, we learn that Sarah, Abraham's wife, dies. She passed away at the age of 127 in the region of Hebron in the land of Canaan. Uh, The fact that this was in the land of Canaan is massively important because this is the land that God promised to give to Abraham and Sarah and their descendants. And so one even wonders if Abraham began to doubt that God would or could keep his promises to give him the land because Sarah dies as a sojourner, as a foreigner. She never got to experience possessing the land as her very own. And whether or not he wonders, we don't know, but we do know that he mourns. In verse two, we see that after Sarah's death, Abraham mourns and weeps for her. And after he mourns Sarah's death, he turns his attention to finding a burial place for her. And so he approaches the Hittites. We need to remember that though God promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham and to his descendants after him, the land was presently populated by different nations, right? Nations like the Amorites, Jebusites, Girgashites, Hivites and Hittites. The Hittites were one of the nations Abraham lived alongside in the land of Canaan. And notice what Abraham says about himself in verse four. Look there with me. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place. Right, because Abraham was a foreigner among them, he doesn't have any place of his own to bury Sarah. He doesn't have any property of his own that would be a suitable place to bury her. So he appeals to them to give him a place to bury her. And they respond really favorably to him. Look at what they say to him in verse five. Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. 
none of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So, so as much as Sarah's death may have caused Abraham to doubt whether God would fulfill his promises to him, the Hittites' response to Abraham serves as confirmation that God's promises to him are alive and well. And the reason I say that is because two of the promises that God made to Abraham were that he would bless Abraham materially and make his name great among the nations. And God has kept those two promises over and over again in the last 11 chapters. And here they are, continuing to come true, even as he nears the end of his life. God continues making his name great among the nations. You are a prince of God, the Hittites say to Abraham. And God continues blessing Abraham. You can have the choicest of our tombs. We will not withhold anything from you. If you've been tracking with our our series in Genesis and you've been following along through these Abrahamic narratives, you're like, dang, he went to Egypt and Pharaoh gave him riches? He went to Gerar and Abimelech gave him riches. He's among the Hittites and they're like, we're not withholding anything from you. The Lord is keeping his promise to bless Abraham. And after the Hittites tell him he can have the choicest of their tombs, Abraham's like, all right, I want to talk to Ephron, the son of Zohar, one of the Hittites. He has a field with a cave in it and I want that field and that cave. Apparently, Ephron is sitting there among all of the Hittites. We don't know if Abraham knows he's sitting there, and he's like, I'm just going to subtly put pressure on Ephron in front of all his brothers and sisters. Y'all said I could have whichever one I want. All right, I want Ephron's field and cave. We don't know if that's what's going on here, but Ephron is sitting there, and in verse 10 and following, he responds. He tells Abraham he's happy to give him the field and the cave. But Abraham is perhaps a little concerned that if Ephron just gives him the land, that at some point he might take it back from him. So Abraham says in verse 12, you tell me the price, and I'm gonna pay the price of the land. He wants to make sure this land becomes his permanent property. So Ephron says, All right, you, you can have it for 400 shekels. We have no idea how much money that was because the value of the shekel fluctuates throughout the course of the Old Testament and across the course of a thousand years. So we have no idea how expensive this land was. We do know in Jeremiah that before the nation of Israel went into exile, Jeremiah purchased a piece of land from one of his relatives and he bought it for 12 shekels. So maybe this field and this cave is really nice. We, we just don't know. The point though is not the price of the field. The point is that Abraham buys it. He weighs out the silver in verse 16, gives it to Ephron, and verse 17 tells us, in conclusion, so the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. Moses wants to make it crystal clear to us that on this day, 
Abraham became an owner of land in Canaan. So just as God began making good on his promise to give Abraham the land of Canaan when he gave him the well in Beersheba, here he is continuing to make good on his promise by giving Abraham ownership of Ephron's field. And it's not just that Moses wants to make it crystal clear that God is making good on his promise. You may have also noticed his slight obsession with ensuring that we know exactly what piece of property he is talking about. Look with me at verses eight and nine. If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah. It is at the end of his field. Now look at verse 11 at Ephron's response. No, my Lord, I give you the field, and I give you the cave. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it, the field and the cave, to you. Now look at verse 17. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it. Now look at verse 19. Abraham buried his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre. Now look at verse 20. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Field, cave, field, cave, field, cave, field, cave, cave in Machpelah, field at the end, field with the cave at the end of it. Yet, yeah, wait, we get the point. Abraham acquired a field east of Mamre, and that field had a cave in it. Right, field and cave are mentioned 13 times in this chapter. Why? Why does Moses tell us over and over again about the field and the cave that Abraham bought? Like, like is that going to help you in your Christian walk this week? Right, this is good. When, you, when you encounter hardship this week, are you supposed to meditate on the field and the cave? I read, I read about the field and the cave at Machpelah. Yes, Lord, grant me encouragement because of the field and the cave. I'm struggling right now, but you have gave to Abraham a field and a cave. Yes, Lord. Right, is, that, is that what you are supposed to take from this passage? Like, what's the point? Here's the point. And here's why you should be encouraged by the field and the cave. Everything that has happened over the last 11 chapters has revolved around God keeping his promises to Abraham and Sarah. His promises to give them many descendants and his promises to give them the land of Canaan. They would have descendants more numerous than the sand on the seashore and they would possess all of the land of Canaan as far as Abraham's eye could see, northward and southward and eastward and westward. All of it would belong to them. But now, Sarah is dead. She died without ever experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises. 
she died without ever coming close to possessing the promised land. Pretty soon, Genesis 25, Abraham is going to die. And all he'll have to show for it is a well in Beersheba and a field with a cave in it. He won't live to possess all of the land of Canaan as God promised him. Death has prevented them from experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises to them. More than that, death has prevented God from giving Abraham and Sarah all of the land which he promised him. Or has it? If you've been tracking with us through this series on Genesis, then you know the answer to that question. It is a resounding no. Death hasn't prevented God from keeping his promises to Abraham and Sarah. Death can't keep God from uh, keeping his promises to them or us because God is greater than death and holds the keys of death. Nothing can stop God from keeping his promises to his people. Not even death can stop God from keeping his promises to give his people the land he promised them. That's what the point of this chapter is. Right? When, when you're reading the Bible, have you ever taken a step back and asked the question, why is this chapter here? Like, what does this have to do with me at all? What do I need to know about Sarah's death and, and where she is buried? Like, why is it important that I know all these details about Sarah's death and burial? The reason this chapter is important and the reason these details are important is because it shows that Abraham knew that death couldn't stop God from fulfilling his promise to give them the land. That's why he is so insistent on burying her in Canaan. If he didn't think God could keep his promises to give them the land, there's no point in burying her in Canaan. He could just take her back to their homeland. He buries her in Canaan because he knows this is not the promised land and this isn't the end. God will keep his promises to give us the promised land. He bought the field and the cave because he knew that the field and the cave were a down payment on a much greater land that God was preparing for his people. That's why this field and this cave are so important in the rest of Genesis. By the end of Genesis, we will see that all of the patriarchs and all of their wives are buried in this cave. Listen to what Jacob says in Genesis 49. Jacob commanded, so you got Abraham, Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. They have two sons, Jacob and Esau. That Jacob grows up, has sons of his own, comes to the end of his own life. This is Jacob at the end of his life. Jacob commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field at Machpelah. 
to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan. You, you know that one that Abraham talks so much about? Bury me in that field and that cave, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. So there they buried, there they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. All of the patriarchs and their wives were buried in this cave and they were buried in this cave because they knew that death couldn't stop God from fulfilling his promises to them. They knew that even if they died, God's promises still lived because God always lives. And it was important to them that when they rose in the resurrection, that they rose in the land of Canaan because Canaan foreshadowed the true promised land that God will give to all of his people. That is why they are buried in this cave and in this land. Now you might be thinking, John, aren't you reading into the text a bit? Like the text doesn't say anything about Abraham believing in a resurrection and knowing that God would keep his promises. Like, like where are you getting this from? I'm getting this from Jesus. In John chapter eight, while Jesus is debating with Pharisees, who hated him but claimed to be Abraham's descendants, Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus says that Abraham, with eyes of faith, saw that God would send his Messiah and saw that God would keep all of his promises to his people through this Messiah. This is why the author of Hebrews says about Abraham, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for, because, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He got to the land of Canaan, and he said, this is not the one, this is not the land. There is a city coming that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is a type of that land to come. So I'm coming here, waiting on that land. Listen to what the, the author now says. These all died in faith. These all died in faith. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, not having received the things promised. So does this mean they were fools for believing? No. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They greeted them. They saw the promises coming to fruition from afar, and they died in faith. Yet their death didn't stop God from keeping his promises to them. 
for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, or of the Chaldeans, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Why is it important that Abraham bury Sarah in Canaan? Because he knows there's a day coming when that cave is going to open up and she is going to walk out. She died in faith. He died in faith. The patriarchs and their wives died in faith, but they died in faith knowing that that faith was not in vain. Their graves would open and they would walk out in the land that God promised them. And then it would become theirs. Abraham bought the cave and sought to be buried in a cave because he was looking forward to the day when God himself would be buried in a cave and then rise and walk out of that cave in resurrection glory. Abraham knew by faith that God would not only keep his promises to give them the land, but he would keep his promise to send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. That through the Messiah, God would keep all of his other promises to his people, and God did this. God did this by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus, on the cross, crushed the power of sin and death, of Satan and hell. He crushed the power of those things on the cross by dying as the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He was buried in a cave, in a tomb. And three days later, he rose in power, showing his victory over sin and death and Satan and hell. And he calls all people everywhere to turn from their sins and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And all who do will not only be forgiven, but granted eternal life with him in the land that God is preparing for all who love him. And God is actively preparing that land now for his people. He has promised to give it to us, and nothing can stop him from keeping his promises to his people. Not our sins, not our foolishness, not our weakness and frailty, not the fallenness of the world, not even our own death can stop God from keeping his promises to us because the promises do not belong to us, they belong to God, and God always lives. His promises are not limited by the power of the grave. He is over the grave. He calls for dead people from the grave and he gives to them his promises and says, nothing is gonna stop me from accomplishing my purposes and promises in your life. That is the message of Genesis 23 for you and I today. If you have trusted in Christ, you have a hope that death cannot extinguish because your hope is with God. And death has no power over God. You have, as Peter says, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, right? God is preparing a land for all of his people where he will dwell with them and they will be his people and he will be their God and not even death itself can stop God from keeping that promises to you. In the resurrection, in the resurrection, you and I, if Christ doesn't come before we die, will rise, and we will enter into his glory forever. But I want you to see 
that Genesis 23 has some other very important things to teach us now. Not only that death cannot stop God from fulfilling his promises to us, but there's two things that I want to point out uh, that Genesis 23 teaches us, especially as it pertains to what you should expect to experience in this life as you wait for God to fulfill his promises. The first thing you should expect to experience are the ongoing effects of sin and death. God's chosen people are not spared the effects of sin and death in this life. Look again at the opening verses of the chapter. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Death, mourning, weeping, the curse sin. Those things are being fully felt and experienced by God's chosen people. And if Abraham and Sarah, recipients of God's promises and heirs of his covenant salvation, if they weren't spared the effects of sin and death, then neither should we expect to be spared the effects of sin and death. Faith in Jesus will not eliminate all of the effects of the curse in your life. If you trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven. You will be justified. You will be given an, an eternal inheritance. Yes and amen to all those things. But you'll also continue to struggle with sin as Abraham and Sarah did. You'll also experience sickness, disease, and all sorts of physical ailments. You'll also experience emptiness, frustration, utility. You'll experience tragedy, heartache, and sorrow. Like Abraham, you will at times still mourn and weep. This may sound like an obvious thing to say, but it's, it's important for us to acknowledge because of how subtly our thinking can be infiltrated by the belief that our faith should protect us from those types of things. I'm sure most of us would say that we know that Jesus never promised that we won't experience pain, sorrow, sorrow or death. He never promised that, I know that. But how many of us, when those things happen, respond by being shocked or surprised that they've actually happened? Or how many of us respond by wondering what we did wrong as though we're being punished for not having enough faith? Or how often we respond by asking how God could let this happen to me? I'm on team Jesus now, what gives? Or you respond by wondering whether God really loves you. All of these responses and others like them reveal a fundamental misunderstanding about what God has and hasn't promised us. He has promised us many wonderful things, things that we can stake our entire lives upon. But he hasn't promised 
the complete removal of the effects of sin and death that we should expect to experience it. What did Jesus say to his disciples? In this world, you will have fun. In this world, you will experience constant joy. In this world, you will have a stress-free life. Kids, is that what Jesus said? In this world, kids, you will have pain. It's true, yes. What's the other word that he uses? In this world, you will have suffering is also true. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. Kids, give me your attention for just one minute. This, this is really important for you all to understand as well. Jesus promises his followers lots of glorious things. Lots of glorious things. But he never promises that we won't experience pain. He never promises that we won't experience sickness. He never promises that we won't experience hard things. He never promises that we won't be sad. He never promises that he won't let anything bad happen to us. He promises that when those hard things happen, he will be with us and he will preserve us through them and he will never let anything separate us from him. Those are far greater promises than keeping pain from happening to us. God's chosen people aren't spared the effects of sin and death. Even for the heroes of the faith, life is tainted with sorrow, weeping, and mourning. And I think there's a specific word of comfort and encouragement here for widows and widowers. Just think about what's happening here. Abraham has just lost his wife. Now, we don't know exactly how old they were when they got married, but let's roll with the safe assumption that in the ancient Near East, they were probably married sometime in their 20s. If that was the case, then Abraham and Sarah likely celebrated somewhere around 100 anniversaries. Right? We trip out on 50 anniversaries in our culture. 100 anniversaries probably. You can imagine the grief, the sorrow, the chasm that existed in Abraham's life from that point forward. If you're experiencing grief at the loss of a spouse, it's likely grief will be your companion for the remainder of your life. How could it not be when the one you loved for so long is no longer with you? But I also want you to know, if that's you, that grief will not always be your companion. Abraham knew that grief would not always be his companion. And his burial of Sarah in the land of Canaan is a supreme act of faith in that fact. Abraham knew by faith that the promised land of Canaan that remained tainted by sin and death would give way to a true promised land a land suffused by life, pure life, abundant life, untainted life. He knows that a promised land is coming in which Sarah's tomb will be transformed into a womb that will give birth to life 
incorruptible. And in that land, God will finally wipe away all of your tears. He will gather up all of your sorrow, your mourning, your grief, and he will lay them in a tomb forever. They will never come to life again. And the second and final thing I want you to expect to experience in this life is feeling like a foreigner for the rest of your life. God's people will be spiritual foreigners in this world. We're now at the end of Abraham's life. He's been walking with God for over 60 years now. When he left Ur in chapter 12, he was 75. We know that he's 10 years older than Sarah, so he's now 137 years old. And look at what he says to the Hittites about himself in verse four. I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. 60 years have passed, and Abraham is still a sojourner and foreigner. Ever since he responded to God's call to leave his family and his homeland to go to Canaan, he hasn't had the joy of being in his own land, among his own people. He hasn't had the joy of being a a full citizen and feeling the comforts of being in his own country. And in the New Testament, Peter picks up on this and says that all those who put their faith in Jesus are now strangers, foreigners, sojourners, and exiled in a world that is not their own. Right, well, we may be citizens, most of us, I assume, are citizens of the United States, living in the United States, but the, result, the, the reality is, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are, first and foremost, a citizen of the kingdom of God, awaiting the complete arrival of God's kingdom. We are living in the kingdom of darkness, as citizens of the kingdom of light, and that will bring with it feelings of displacement, of not belonging of longing for a place where true peace and justice reign. Right? If, you, if you come to faith in Jesus out of a context where the people around you don't follow Jesus, you shouldn't be surprised if those relationships aren't the same as they used to be and don't feel the same as they used to. It may feel like all of a sudden you don't belong anymore. But Abraham's status as a sojourner isn't just an instruction about what we should expect to experience, it's also a bit of a warning and a call to us that the kingdom God is building for his people is only for those who remain foreigners in the kingdom of darkness. There can be no doubt that if Abraham wanted to become a full-fledged citizen of Canaan, he could have done so. He could have gone through the rites of passage every nation has to become a citizen. He could have observed their customs. He could have worshipped their gods and on and on. He could have turned back and just gone back to Ur of the Chaldeans and been around his family and his friends. Friends, Christians today, you also can become full-fledged citizens of this world by observing its customs and worshipping its gods. Gods like money, wealth, and comfort. Gods like power, lust, and self-expression. I wonder for you, where are you being tempted most to conform to this world, to turn back to it in your heart? Which of its gods are you most tempted to worship? I want to think again of the teens 
one of the most obvious gods in our culture today is the God of self-expression. You do what feels best to you and don't let anyone tell you any different. And I hope you see, that just runs pretty much entirely contrary to what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, no, like what you feel and what you'll want to do in this life will not always be good for you. And you need to check the things that you feel and the impulses that you have and the desires of things that you want to do. You need to check them against God's word. God's word gives life. When, when we step outside of the boundaries of what God says is good for us, that's where we experience death and pain and sorrow. God gives us his word as instructions for our good. Uh, and, and so his call to you is to not worship the God of self-expression, but worship the God who made you and who knows what is best for you, right? That's the God of Elsa and of Frozen, right? Let it go, let it go. What does she say? Like, nothing's gonna stop me from doing what I want, basically, is like the summary of that, that song. It's a catchy song. I find myself singing it when it comes on. I just wanna belt it out, but then I sing and I'm like, wait, what did I just say? That's crazy talk. Elsa, that's crazy. You don't do that. You're not meant to just express yourself all you want. You're meant to worship God and to walk in his word, right? How are you, teens, also tempted to make a home in this world rather than waiting for your full citizenship in the world to come, right? Christians don't have dual citizenship. In God's eyes, there are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And his people can't be citizens in both. We live in the kingdom of man, but we live as foreigners, right? Imagine you were checking out of a hotel and as you were at the front desk signing your bill, you watched as new guests pulled up to the hotel in a U-Haul. You thought, oh, they must be traveling across the country to go to their new home. But then they start unpacking the U-Haul, bringing the furniture into their hotel room. You hear them banging on the wall. They're hanging up pictures and they're, they're making the hotel room their home. What would you say to them? So this is a Wendy's, right? Like this, that's not what this hotel is for. You don't make your home in a hotel. You're staying for a time on your way to your true home. In a sense, this world is like a hotel. It is not our home. And we shouldn't seek to make it our home while we are here. To do so would be like moving into a hotel room. Our land is not this land that we live in now. It is the land to come. If we wanna be citizens in God's kingdom then, we must be sojourners now. And the glorious news for us today is that we won't be sojourners long. This life is a vapor and a mist. We are here for one moment and then gone the next, but even if we die before Christ returns, we have a certain hope that not even death can stop God from fulfilling his promises to us. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we will also rise and then we will no longer be foreigners we will no longer experience the effects of sin and death we will be with god in his kingdom forever so let's keep going let's pray heavenly father we pray that you would help your people now as we continue to experience the, the effects of sin and death in this world Please keep us from discouragement. Help us to fix our eyes on you, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
And we pray that you'd help us to look forward to that day where there will be no more mourning or weeping or sorrow. And Lord, we pray that in the midst of our discomfort living as foreigners, spiritual foreigners in this world, that you would grant us encouragement that we will not always be foreigners and the power and strength to turn away from the temptations we face. And when we stumble and fall, the reminder that your arms are always open to your people, that we might find repentance and faith and forgiveness at your throne. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.